0: Laborate with each other. of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truett, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. Peace. Cosmic Strange. Sweet arising of... Another session of Baffling Combustions. My name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. And so this is a (laughs) (laughs) follow-on to a podcast that doesn't exist (laughs) called Stress. Uh, And, um, you know, curiously, Sparrow, we spoke the other day and you said oh yeah duh, 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 always busy and then you mentioned oh yeah and then you have this podcast that you need that I needed to sort of open and you know edit right oh yeah yeah so I caught that instigation and I looked for it and I couldn't find it and I never oh. downloaded it oh So, that podcast that we did um, on stress, the shape of which may exist in any of our consciousnesses, just us three, though, because um, it's gone. And I think it's interesting because I felt that not that the content of that session... (laughs) <laughs> was stressful, but the topic is of stress. I feel, uh, you know, put aside, where, you know, just, I don't know. It was a confluence of things. And then we went into a hiatus, right? Right after that. And, yeah. And then we were going to, we are going to read works that have an aspect of stress, mm. um, but there's no foreground. And just to conclude, you know, one of my contentions is that stress doesn't exist. It's something that we have constructed of a number of emotions and use as a sort of catch-all. Hallelujah. I'm so sorry to have um, bobbled and broken Humpty Dumpty. (laughs) Um, And that 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 work is gone. It's like uh,
1: Hemingway's Lost Stories, right? What what are those? Or just a bunch of stories that his first wife lost of his. Uh Uh-huh. Reportedly leaving them, I think, in a taxi cab or a train car or something.
2: These things. I I used to feel this when I... um, would lose a notebook. When I was young, I'd carry around a real true notebook and I'd lose it. This happened to some friend of mine the other day, lost a notebook. And I said, well, I know what I always thought when I would lose a notebook is you remember everything that's worth remembering. Mm -hmm. You know, in your 120 pages, you'll remember one poem or you'll remember one idea. And that's probably the best idea if, if you still remember it. So whatever our numerous philosophizing about stress, whatever we still remember is what's worth noting, I
0: think. Uh Uh-huh. And also, you know, once the event has occurred, to like fully, um, I I don't know, I guess, surrender to it. Like there's nothing you can do. It's gone, you know? Yeah. And then uh, see what floats up from that, you know, which will be the best fragments.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean there is some kind of irony that the whole subject is stress and there's something a little bit stressful about losing your podcast. So there's a joke in there somewhere what it is I can't quite isolate.
1: So we're discussing stress today? I thought we were discussing
2: heartbreak. I know. I thought we were discussing heartbreak, but Sam explained to me that it was stress.
1: Oh.
0: Okay. We were supposed to do well, a stressful structure <laughs> between <laughs> Uh <laughs> well we would have had uh stress, which we'd done like four months ago, and then we did Bell Hooks, which was, you know, fantastic. I've been listening. Oh yeah. And then um we do this, you know, and so we're taking what we learned through the Practice theory and practice, uh, liberatory practice theory as, and infusing it into what we're talking about now, which, you know, would seek to make that leap from one stress to another. But that former stress, as we've noted, no longer exists. So we can do what we want.
2: We can go to heartbreak, I mean?
0: I did select a text. That's very brief mm-hmm. that I feel stress. I feel is stressful. Um, uh-huh. It's a sentence. Oh, that's pretty we can cool. do yeah. stress.
1: We can do stress if you want. It's fine by me.
0: Yeah, I, th- I guess we'll go back
2: to stress. And I wrote out all these notes to heartbreak, but then I've been thinking about now I have notes to stress. So I'm, I can go in either direction. And besides, they're not very different.
1: <laughs> As an educator, uh, In uh, um, the independent school world, um, one thing that has really gotten a lot of attention, I would say, in the last five years, is student stress, Mm. almost to the point of being fetishized, Mm -hmm. and and this notion that um, stress uh, erodes uh, mental well-being, um, more than uh, any other emotional state for these students, especially the uh, the teenagers. And there are attempts to um, to try to be rigorous and educate the kids while minimizing stress. Hmm. and stress stress seems to be associated with um, evaluation, so grades. Hmm and uh and in workload and it's really has become um interestingly i would say um the epitome of sin or the epitome of evil rather to be eradicated at all cost that, stress you mean yeah, stress
2: is sort of equated with evil
1: yeah th- yes exactly uh, that it's uh, a pandemic of sorts an emotional <laughs> pandemic and um Yeah, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of awareness, uh, workshops, um, books that focus on pedagogies that limit student stress. So just an observation, a cultural observation that I thought I would share to start with.
2: Hmm. So you're kind of under Hmm. pressure from the powers that be to try to limit the stress on your students, i.e. to give them less homework and to give them less tests. Is that right? Would that be correct?
1: Y- yeah, yes. Um, or to, to give more thought to, um, yeah, numbers of assessments, um, anything that could induce stress on the part of the student. Because mm. there's been such a, a mental health crisis. That's the claim, at least, um, amongst teenagers. It's been written about in the Times and the New Yorker and all sorts of media outlets um, mm. that. Uh, That uh, teaching uh, is being um, looked at as a source of it, that, you know, um, uh, unrealistic expectations, um, um, workloads that keep kids up to the wee hours of the morning, Mm -hmm. that that this stress is a a massacre of the innocence.
2: Yeah, I'm vaguely aware of it. I was just talking to this friend of mine, this friend of mine from high school, Eric Block just contacted me you know a week ago and then we had a three-hour conversation like two days ago and i was telling him the story of how i got into cornell university and i was saying i didn't really want to go to cornell i wanted to be a hippie but i didn't have the courage to tell my parents i you know there was no such thing as a gap year in 1971 they hadn't invented that and so i had to write this essay for the you know application so i just put on uh the mc5 album uh kick out the jams as loud as i could and i just wrote something in like you know a half an hour and that was my essay and you know nowadays kids spend literally years working on these college essays and i got in somehow you know and, you know, the, the pressure that kids put on themselves and that are put on them to, you know, it's not the tests are so awful for most people, it's the grades that you get from the test. It's something you want. You have to have a desire like you have to want something that is at stake that w- if you get a low grade, you won't get it. And that that thing that people want is to get into Yale. So yeah. back when I was young, like there was much less competition for these schools and to the point that I could just you know, write whatever came into my head and get in. Nowadays, people do... I mean, I used to work at the 92nd Street Y and these poor young people from the Upper East Side would work with autistic kids for years, which they didn't even like, just to have something to put on their... Uh, Essays to to apply to uh, Brown. Yeah, there's a lot of that stress
1: as a result of uh, aspir- that aspirational stuff around around college. Like a lot of, I don't know if it's status anxiety or what I would call it, but it's it's really pernicious, especially for upper middle class and wealthy kids. Hmm. Maybe even more so than. Uh, kids who come from working class family? I don't know. It's an interesting sociological question. I guess it...
2: Yeah, you would think, like, rich kids have it easy. You know, that would be the stereotype. But I think they no longer, if they once did, I, but I think maybe it one like, my father used to talk about the gentleman's yeah. C. Like, a gentleman would go to one of these, you know, Princeton, and he would just get C's, get a grade of the C, whatever that is, uh, you know, 3.0, 2.0 maybe, and, and just coast through college and, you know, go be on the boating team or whatever it is rich people do, go to parties with cocktails, just enjoy themselves. And now it seems like that kind of life of leisure uh, that that the aristocratic rich folk used to have is kind of gone, and in its place is endless scrambling for, I guess, status, or money. I don't know what people want. Almost Do you the feeling that these kids are like born old? You know, they don't really have a youth. You know, like when I was a kid, you would just spend whatever hours and hours playing punch ball, playing all these, you know. Yeah, this amusing sports.
0: I was because, I, I mean, was like a uh, you straight guys, A student.
2: Yeah.
0: On this score, I feel that um, I feel I actually would like to insert something before the surrender of the uh, notebook or the um, our last session. Mm-hmm. I'd like to insert a, a morning moment of mourning for that podcast by way of, you know, i just like to read some of these notes. If we're going to just talk about stress, can I just, I promise not to say anything. I'll just <laughs> read off the piece of paper. And um, just for me as a, a ritual of mourning, for what what was lost? All right, let's now, hear it. So this is what I found: compel of c strictia or strictitus tight, compressed, stringary draw tight, noose, no music on a slack string. What's the antithesis of stress? Mm -hmm. Specific, underscore, restraint, pressure, tension, emphasis, a modern word, constrain, district, tight, draw apart, cockroach, apart, another away, direction, misfortune, challenges, Problem, mistakes, is stress an emotion, mm-hmm. euphemism, catch all, twist, stretch, old English, Strakesian, it's an evocation, feels it or of it, physical, psychological, 1955. Stressful, 1846, Responsibility, What's the Third Stage, Darwin. Wow, that's
2: great. Maybe all that's, of our podcasts. That's all she that. wrote.
0: That's all I got.
2: Wow.
1: Those are some great lyrics, Jim.
2: Yeah, I just like it as a <laughs> artwork. <laughs> it's a yeah, beautiful You just have artwork. to come up with a catchy hook for
0: it to
2: make it into a hit single. Right
0: on. I mean, maybe maybe that's the way out of stress is to turn it into song.
1: Now, I know uh, Sigmund Freud.
0: <laughs>
1: Freud and Jung both, um, this is low-hanging fruit perhaps, but they understood um, stress uh, as uh, largely a psychodynamic issue. that the, uh, energies, uh, mentally, like, I guess what Freud would refer to as the, uh, the id, the ego, the superego were, um, in a state of conflict or, um, when, when you were doing something, uh, or at a moment when unconscious material, um, was trying to assert itself and the, uh, Conscious part of your mind was resisting it. That that uh, that often led to stress. That stress was a uh, defense mechanism. Hmm. So uh, not all the time, but um, some stress uh, is indicative of this, this psychodynamic struggle that you're not even really aware of. But stress is the uh, the fume the fume of that. You know. Hmm.
2: Hmm. So, like, one part of you wants to go to Princeton, another part of you hates Princeton, wants to fail, wants to just go out and play among the daffodils, and the struggle between those two opposite uh, tendencies is stress. Is that that can that that
1: can that can be, or when you're thinking and feeling different things? When there's some plate moving in the subterranean realm, um, but your, um, conscious self is resisting it and trying to push it down, trying
0: to ignore it. Mm. Um, it's interesting. It's, it, it sounds atmospheric. Hmm. Um, you mean like, uh, like weather? Yeah. Kind of a pervasiveness. Like we live, you know, in air, we live in the weather. And then I, I guess it's, is it a state of not being in homeostasis? Not being if in home. Yeah. Yeah. It's your environment.
1: Being pretty alienated from what's going on below, or there's just some moment of discord or like a tangle, a psychic tangle, or not. Uh, two opposing forces. But there's, um, so when you're feeling stress, there may very well be a lot of psychic activity at that moment that you're unaware of, but that's creating the um, the stress somatically. So you feel it in your body, but it's psychogenic.
0: It sounds to me like bourgeois blues.
1: <laughs> 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 yeah, pretty much.
2: <laughs> well. What do you mean? But, that You don't that, have like real problems. You're not starving to death. You're just... That, conflicted
0: yeah. relative to the human condition on earth which we should talk about sometime Well maybe
1: maybe that's um, maybe that's why right bourgeois and wealthy people are stressed out all the time right
2: They seem to have more stress but it could be just be that they use the word stress I don't know that poor people say I'm under a lot of stress they <laughs> right. may say something like how am I going to pay the rent but they don't mm-hmm. what's the word abstract their problems into this word that is kind of a, you know, college-educated person's word, stress.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, didn't Nietzsche say something like, um, when there is peace, the thinking man fights with himself? Mm -hmm. That's
2: good. That's a good one. And also, I think I was there was some essay I read years ago about psychohistory that kind of, uh, it was in the New York press, I, I guess I've never forgotten it, that was kind of on this theme. It said that uh, there's like a kind of erotic relationship between people in America and the president. So the president's elected, you sort of fall in love with the president, you have what's call people, you still use this term, the honeymoon period after you elect the president. And uh, this is a period where you're kind of perfectly uh, in love with the president. And then gradually, or not so gradually, the president disappoints you, you, the the public. And um, you get more and more disaffected, disgruntled with the president. At that point, the president has to start a war <laughs> to like uh, deflect your uh, emotions onto the enemy. So instead of being angry at your, you know, dissatisfaction with the president, you project that, that um, dissatisfaction on Russia. And now you're really angry at Russia, let's say in the current situation or in you know, much of the situation in the last 50 years has been a deflection onto Russia for whatever reason. So, you know, that's psycho history supposedly. That's, you know, that's how it works.
0: Well, on that note, if I may, I mean, I have a something that is a document, um, part of a, the structure, I guess, you know, of our experiment in self-governance, um, you know? And um, I'm wondering if I could read that and if we could talk about an example of um, something that's stressful. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: So this is the Second, second Amendment oh. uh, in the, you know, what's called the Bill of Rights. And it's this, a well-regulated militia comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed, Hmm. period. That's
2: interesting. You're right. That's a very interesting and weird sentence. Makes you realize why yeah. uh, there's and so many arguments over this uh, sentence.
0: It's very stressful.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a sentence that's a little bit at war with itself. It's very unclear what the relationship between these different uh, phrases is uh, in the sentence. I didn't realize that that it had that part about the right of the people to keep and bear arms. I thought it would just said, you know, that a well-regulated militia was necessary. And therefore, you know, because like the liberal position is, they're talking about a militia that's well-regulated. They're not talking about individual people owning guns. But what right-wing people say is they read the other phrase and they say it is about the right of people to own
0: guns, which both seem to be true. Well, one of the stressful aspects of the incomplete sentence, it's a, um, it's not a grammatical sentence. Mm. Um. It's a complete sentence. The complete sentence is a well-regulated militia, and then the qualifier, parenthetical, geez, some of language, which is not as good as it used to be, being necessary to the security of a free state, that it's necessary for the security of a free state to have a well-regulated militia, Mm -hmm. right? And then it's got the comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, which, what does that refer to? Yeah. Or is there an implicit conjunction there um, and what it's is not the rest there, of though. This, yeah. And yeah. then it's shall not be infringed, uh-huh. in- infringed. Uh, you know, we'd have to interrogate it more. But th- that's a sort of. Uh, uh, I- I'm not sure in 18th century. I guess this is 1791. I think was this amendment. Mm. If I'm correct, I, I believe. Mm. I'm not sure what kind of power infringed has. You know, as a legal speak, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a it's a that fragment, the right of the people to keep and bear arms is um, ambiguous.
2: I mean, it seems to me what the sentence means is because it's necessary that there be a militia. um, Therefore, Mm. we need to have people who have guns to uh, to to uh,
1: join the militia
2: yeah to to draft or to I- I involve in the militia that seems to be what it's saying i mean it's pretty indirect how it's saying it but that it seems like the important thing is the militia but in order to have a militia you can't have nobody with a gun it seems, to be, even, it seems to be what even
1: seems to be what i like saying. sparrow's reading i like that i think you're right that's how i read it too
0: Yeah, I'm not a student of that stuff. And I I think that that's a a fair reading, you know, as with everything, the Constitution and its reading, et cetera, has to evolve, you know, with circumstance. Mm -hmm. Uh, I believe it, you know, since that case in, I think it was the District of Columbia, you know, the kind of weaponization of gun rights is um, gruesome, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, coinciding with the Reagan, you know, Times and uh Charleston Heston. Remember him? Yeah. yeah. From my cold. Yeah, all hands. of that. Yeah, NRA, all that, yeah. I-, I think it's a sad chapter in our in our um history. But I find interesting is the basis of of state, of state, and of a free state as being joined to violence, Mm. or, you know, guns are a violent instrument. Mm. And I find that to be troubling. I find that to be stressful, the use (laughs) that's been made of that.
2: Mm.
0: Because I I sort of feel it makes us co-conspirators to a structure of self-governance as it's practiced now that's more and more increasing to overt violence, you know?
2: What do you mean? The government is more and more violent?
0: More openly violent. Yeah, I believe I believe there's a glorification of violence. Um mm. I think that there's a you know most entertainment is weighted oh, toward Violence. There's the glorification of the police force.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: there's a feeder system. You know, there's Dod paying the NFL to do some flag thing, like at halftime.
2: Oh yeah, All I this hate this of because militarization. Uh, yeah, because I'm a, a a baseball fan. I don't like sports, but I like right. baseball. And I went to the Hudson Renegades. That's like a minor league team that's connected. It's I think the bottom level team leading ultimately to the Yankees. And they're in Fishkill. I went to a game this this summer and they were playing with someone from like the North Carolina Crawdads or something like that. And then in the middle of the game, they bring out this guy who's in the National <laughs> Guard. And he's standing on the field, and you all got to stand up and salute him or something, and they tell you all the horrible things he's done (laughs) that you're supposed to, you know, uh, cheer for. And he's some poor guy, normal-looking middle-aged guy in the uh, National Guard, and he's like, he served in Afghanistan, he served in Iraq, and he served twice in Guantanamo in our uh, prison camp concentration camp in cuba and i'm supposed to uh, you know be thrilled with this guy and if you don't you get a faint feeling like someone is going to really smash you in the face if you don't show the proper respect to this war criminal and uh, you know when i was a kid I didn't have to go to yankee stadium and be given a lesson in patriotic uh, imperialism <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, I think that potentially this clause that I feel, you know, if this sentence, um, you know, I think there's a direct correlation between your experience, um, Sparrow.
1: It's it's a culture of death. That's that's what uh, some Catholic theologians call it.
0: Huh? Yeah. The only reason it was left in was. States' rights was a sense of propriety within states to have their own armed force. I mean,
2: I don't even know what a militia is. We don't have militias anymore. I don't think this sentence refers to the modern world. It's not like we need lots of people with guns so we can, like, ask them to please join the National Guard, Guard. bring their guns and help defend us from... The Canadian invaders. I mean, there's they. Ha- the National Guard has their own guns. What is a militia? I don't. Is that does that refer to the army? I, I, it's it's very unclear to me what is a militia. And you know these crazy oath keepers, they think that they're a militia and they're on trial. Or last I knew, they were on trial in D.C. and they're saying, well, we were just stockpiling weapons in Virginia on January 6th because we were hoping that Trump would invoke this law that allows him to activate militias to defend the country in times of rioting and we're one of those militias that's what they're that's what they were hoping i think it was a, like a realistic hope because trump had connections with them so is that what a militia is just a bunch of fascist guys <laughs> that <laughs> yeah. want yeah. to be a i think
0: also a, another question might be: Would police be considered militia? Yeah, a police force, a state troopers, local police, etc.
1: Some, you know, those images, especially during the race riots, after so many black and brown people were, were killed in the streets, um, there was a lot of footage and of um, police forces that had been militarized, where, where they had purchased all. The excess Army army gear. Right. Humvees and tanks even, right? Body armor. This is after the that George out Floyd was Outside of the Iraq Wars. War. Yeah, out of the Iraq War, all that excess stuff that the Army sold to the police departments.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It happened once in the East Village in the 90s when they started to evict squatters. And there was one time on 13th street that the cops like the new york city cops arrived with a tank they had some kind of tank that they'd gotten somewhere it's like the only time i'd ever heard of them having a tank and they're driving it down 13th street to. and this these were squatters who had been in this building for like 10 years 20 years had completely renovated it they were you know, these are people that worked in Midtown. You know, I I knew one or two of them. You know, these are not greasy anarchists. These are just people that moved into a building that was abandoned and made it livable, and now they're being evicted by cops with a tank. <laughs> oh, Jesus,
0: yeah, out of all proportion. But as I've mentioned before, the interstate uh, road system that, uh, Eisenhower initiated is, is graded to allow Sherman tanks, egress. Oh, I don't remember You know, that. it happens that that also coincides with, you know, well-built roads for a lot of trucking and, you know, and for us all to move around, hmm. but the, um, they're all graded to be able to, um, support a tank.
2: And I think I remember Dick Gregory when I saw him in 1975 saying something about that uh, Air Force airplanes could land on the interstates. I, I don't know if I'm just inventing that memory, but
0: I do have that memory. He had a it similar. It plausible. Kind of Sometimes there's a bunch of brush on the sides, but. Uh... There's stretches, I'm sure, it seems that, was, that, would be,
1: that would be stressful, having to land a plane on, on a road. <laughs> <laughs>
2: highway. It's kind of a pun because it's the stresses on the highway that they're considering, the uh, engine in the engineering sense of the word stress, they have to make the highway uh, stress-free for Sherman tanks and possibly airplanes so but but then um, there's an, another stress i mean that that's what i was when i was contemplating my excerpt that i was going to read that i am going to read maybe uh i was thinking about this the kind of cyclical nature of stress you do something to alleviate stress and uh, you know like well now we have highways that have sherman tanks we don't have to worry about that anymore but then uh, then there's the next stress you know that um, now we have tanks on the highways. That's kind of stressful. You know, like stress, the, everything you do to escape stress can sort of recreate new stress. That's like a theory that I have.
1: And I don't maybe think stress
2: re-
0: exists. I, I feel, you know. What do you mean it doesn't exist? A, yeah. What do you mean? Stress, as we've discussed and as we've found, can be located um, as, as it's applied to a psychological state to many different facets you know it's got a lot of faces and I feel each of those faces needs to be um, explored described brought forth Mm -hmm. as they are whereas stress seems to me a kind of this umbrella term that people apply freely and you know and in many many different ways um, that all kind of intersect. And I believe induce, Andrew, that feeling that I picked up from what you were saying of this kind of atmospheric thing, stress, you know, like it's something that could be reported on, you know, in the evening news.
2: <laughs> well, I think you're saying something like, Sam, you're saying something like it has such a broad usage as a word that it's meaningless, doesn't actually describe anything. Is that what
0: you're saying? <laughs> that is broadly yeah. what I'm saying, yeah.
1: I think you're I think you're absolutely spot on.
0: Trust. You need to be able to see it as a, a, a whole structure, three-dimensional structure. Whatever it is that you're, whatever it's made of, you know, you need to be able to name it and talk about it and become its, um, you know, turn it into your teacher.
2: I mean, when I was thinking about the non-existence of stress, I was thinking that it's it's sort of a matter of definition like, let's say you're living on an island you have no food you have to fish you get a fishing rod you may you create a fishing rod somehow you're trying to catch a fish is that stress it's just your situation you know like your situation is whatever your situation is and to call it stress is a uh, it's it's just a kind of a cop-out in a way or a f- fake word. Like, it's just a way of complaining about everything, kind of. <laughs> it's like, all right, let's say I'm running for the bus. Well, I didn't wake up early enough. Therefore, I'm late for the bus. Therefore, I'm running for it. Is it stress? It could be stress, could be not stress,
0: kind of. Sounds like cause and effect. D- what do you mean? Oh it sounds like karma. I yeah, mean, it yeah. sounds like cause and effect, you know. But I'm
2: saying while you're running for the bus, you could say, "Oh, I'm under terrible stress," or you could say, "I am running for the bus." That's what I'm doing. Trying to get to the bus, running as fast as I can. Is it stressful? Not necessarily. Is I mean, it,
0: I'm wondering you could wondering, see it as
2: stress and you could see it as not stress.
0: Yeah. I'm wondering if um how you would feel um, toward this statement that stress is karma, or that karma is stressful. <laughs>
2: well, I mean, I think it depends on your attitude towards karma. You know if, if you if you're running for the bus and you think, well, I didn't get up early enough, of course, I'm late for the bus. That's life. I made the, that decision. Now I'm living with it. That, that then you're not stressed out. You're just thinking, fair enough. It's a fair trade-off, you know, that there's a way to look at karma as it's just fair. There's another way to look at it as oppressive. It's kind of up to you. That's what, uh,
1: I just read this book by Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the oh. late Vietnamese monk, uh-huh. um, called Reconciliation. Huh. Um, and he, he writes about, um, that, that, you know, a Zen perspective on, on, on stress that um, it is a choice on some level or through through mindfulness, we can uh, we can change some of that and the world becomes more manageable. There's and there's less there's less conflict internally.
2: I mean, a lot of it has to do with what you want. If you're like, if you're thinking, I got to get make this bus, I'll get fired if I'm late for work one more time. Um, Hmm. then it can be very stressful. If you think, well, if I miss this bus, I'll be fired. Maybe that's for the best. Maybe I don't like this job. Maybe that's why I never wake up on time. Maybe I need another job and this is how it's playing out. That'll give me a new job. You know, Uh when God closes one door, he opens another window. Like If you have an attitude like that, then maybe you'll have no stress. I don't know. Or far less stress, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, one one thing I would like to ask is, um, I wonder if there's a relationship to the fact that do we talk as much about being calm as huh. we do about being, oh, that that was stressful, or you know, the use of that word stress in various ways. But do we use that word calm like that antithesis? I, I guess I it's certainly never don't. I hear a lot more stress than I hear the word calm or, you know, parallel, you know, or family of uh, associated words, yeah.
2: I know when I was like a young spiritual person in my 20s, when I was around a lot of egotistical, hypocritical young uh, yogis or would-be yogis, you know, that a lot of people would say things like, well, I'm one with the universe. I am not. I kind of vividly remember somebody or other, maybe lots of people saying to me, I'm not really operating from my ego anymore. You know, people would say things kind of like, you know, they wouldn't say I'm calm maybe, but they would. But the one thing that people would say back then, which I think has been completely lost from the language, is if you really like someone, you would call him mellow. You would say, oh, Joey, he's very mellow. And, oh, and actually, I think people would say maybe I'm feeling very mellow today, <laughs> 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 which was basically like saying it's sort of like a little bit between combination of calm and stoned.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. Well, I mean, it seems to me that stress is related to, um, to violence and mm. that there's a lot more. Like uh, violent media and emphasis on on systems of violence, and one doesn't find nearly as many systems broadcast uh, into like calm. And uh, maybe you do. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, no,
2: I think it's maybe there is just sort a of
0: arrow strife sort of balance that even incarnates within media, but it's usually like seemingly banal puff pieces generally you lean into the violence which i feel um is related to the second amendment i mean i
2: think a lot of it has to do with the narrative structure that it's very hard to write a, let's say a tv show a movie a book a novel um where there isn't conflict and violence and it's very hard to have a conversation which is only about nice things like, how are you doing? I'm feeling good. How about you? I'm feeling good. We're both feeling good. I mean, the conversation goes nowhere (laughs) as opposed to complaining about something. Like, you know, I'm under a lot of pressure because my pancreas is going crazy. I was talking to my friend today and he's like, then he had a gallbladder taken out. No, what a gallstone. Then he had another gallstone. Then he had, you know, whatever, uh, arrhythmia of the heart. You know, like, there's a lot to talk about there. Once you're in the hospital getting operations, there's a lot to say. Whereas just um, the language is not a to discuss peacefulness. I mean, there was a point, you know, like real hippies used to go around saying peace, peace, man, peace, peace. And, you know, people would say at least peace. And uh, but, you know, it's it's very hard. Language is not arranged for happiness. (laughs) It does not accommodate happiness.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What was the work that you brought that you found to be stressful, Sparrow?
2: Oh, okay. Well, I'm uh, I don't know if I've mentioned this, but I'm writing this book about how much I hate the Beatles. So as a result, I'm always reading about the Beatles. I got this book somewhere. I found it in my garage called John Lennon, The Life by Philip Norman. And I opened it at random a couple of times and I got these sections about Alan Klein. Alan Klein was the uh, the lawyer who broke up the Beatles, the uh, He had been the, I guess, manager maybe of the Rolling Stones, made him a lot of money, and then three of the Beatles decided they wanted Alan Klein to manage them, so they'll make a lot of money. But Paul McCartney sort of smelled a rat, turned against him, and uh, since the four of them couldn't agree, they broke up. So, I don't know, I'm not that interested in the whole Alan Klein thing, so I kept looking, and then I came upon this... Uh, passage here, which is about the night that John and Yoko fell in love. The creative union that had come before their sexual one now went into instant multimedia overdrive. The brief time they spent together at Kenwood was largely devoted to making two films celebrating their newfound love. The first, officially titled number five, but known as smile, showed John's face in close-up, smiling, grimacing, and waggling his eyebrows. Taken with a camera that recorded 20,000 frames per second, this animated snapshot could be stretched out to almost indefinite length. Yoko originally intended it to last four hours, but eventually whittled it to 52 minutes. The second of these so different Kenwood home movies was called Two Virgins, after the music they had made together in John's studio. Compared with the visuals that music would ultimately inspire, it was an innocently lyrical sequence of faces merging and separating, and hazy silhouettes wrapped in an embrace. What I was thinking about this is the stress of being a Beatle. Uh, John Lennon's, you know, one of the most important rock stars in history. And I think it's 68 at this point, six, I think it's 68. So he's got this demand, he's got to keep writing songs. And the songs not only have to be songs, they have to be different than all the other songs he's ever written. They have to be very appealing, and some of them have to be hits on the radio. And then Yoko, meanwhile, is high up in the avant-garde. She's a major uh, fluxist, which is some branch of, sort of semi-imaginary branch of the avant-garde. And she likewise has to put out stuff that's weird, but kind of appealing. And they're both under this pressure. And then they meet together and begin this collaboration. And they're both liberated, apparently, from their pressures of their individual lives. They start making things that, these, these two films, which admittedly are much more like Yoko's work than like John's. And once they make them, this is my hypothesis. There's the moment that you escape stress, the moment you suddenly find an epiphany, there's a way out of this whole dead end of being a Beatle and writing all these songs. You know, I just read this book length interview with John Lennon called uh, Lennon Remembers, it was published in 19, Rolling Stone in 1970, and John feels more or less trapped as a Beatle, I think, at this point. So he's escapes, he's liberated, and then becomes the horrible feeling once you create these two films or create some new artifact, what are people gonna think of this? And of course they put out Two Virgins, the album famously with them naked on the cover. So that was a lot for people to take from this famous Beatle. And suddenly the escape from stress brings you new higher stress suddenly you there must be a moment where john wakes up after putting out two virgins and he thinks oh my god have i made a fool of myself you know what is this is it any good is it is it bad you know am i just a crappy would-be avant gardist or have i really stumbled into something and I think that you escape stress for a moment and then bam, the boomerang hits you again. That's more or less my thesis about this. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. And then there's my stress about Yoko because, you know, I love Yoko. I met Yoko fairly recently and got to talk to her for 10 seconds. And um, I told her she's my favorite artist. But I've read so much about her. That now I'm starting to doubt whether she's really great. Maybe she is kind of a con artist that has tricked me into thinking she's a genius. Maybe not. Maybe she is. So the the I sort of share in this uh, in the stress in the possible humiliation, if it somehow could be proven for sure <laughs> that Yoko is a fraud that, you know, let's say she stole all her ideas from some anonymous, the equivalent of a uh, a ghostwriter, then, uh, uh, who himself was a kind of errant drunk, and if I knew for sure that she was worthless, then I would be deeply humiliated. I mean, that's writing a whole book about how she's so much better than the Beatles. So... I'm sort of implicated. There's, a, there's a kind of a stress for me as well.
0: It's like uh, like a little child. Like the stress, the original stress, is now uh, incarnated into your stress.
2: Yeah, it's it's contagious. You guys are
0: joined in stress. Yeah, and you know, and I, I mean, the opposite of stress too. Well, I mean, this is this is one question that I'd like to ask then Sparrow, if I may, which is. Where's the pain?
2: Yes, good question. The pain. Well, I mean, the pain is kind of is kind of crucial in the case of uh, at least of of John Lennon. I think that uh, Yoko is a little more unclear. She had this really uh, aristocratic uh, childhood. She, you know, her parents were super rich and. I read somewhere that she would have, there was one person in charge of just sweeping off the seat before she sat down. I mean, she was really tr- treated like a princess. And, you know, that alone, I guess, would put you under stress. But I don't understand her. And then she she breaks with her parents. Her parents cut off her inheritance. She's very rich, but they won't give her any money because she's married, these kind of married... She married three guys, and I think the first two, by her parents considered kind of loser artists. but and then, you know, John had a very a very painful life where he, where neither of his parents were around. He was raised by his aunt, who was pretty distant and formal, you know, almost a kind of parody of uh, the english uh, lace curtain. Uh, you know, propriety obsessed uh, <laughs> maiden. Huh? I mean, as for me, I I, I don't know. I guess I, I the rebellion of Yoko sort of ties into my you know desire to revenge myself on my parents and their the absolute you know iron certainties of their communist belief system to try to like. To do something that's deliberately meaningless, that deliberately breaks with history and with meaning, and uh, and then my anxiety about doing that—that you know it's the wrong thing to do. It's it's decadent, frivolous. Um, but when I was like a teenager, I had this sort of girlfriend, Donna, and we went to um, Staten Island by ferry, paid a quarter went to a little diner in uh, St. George, I think is the neighborhood when you just get off the ferry. And there was just these old guys sitting around. And at that time, on the jukebox, you could play this song, Why, W-H-Y, Why, by uh, Yoko. It was like the flip side of some, you know, John Lennon song. And it's just her, just Yoko singing the word "why" over and over again for five minutes, uh, you know, to a pounding kind of proto-punk beat. And I put on this song, you know, it was pretty loud in this uh, diner. And the guys just looked at me with utter contempt and rage, you know. And it was my, you know, the sort of lonely guys sitting in this diner. And this was my revenge on the world, you know. This was kind of. The Yoko for me was kind of uh, my huh. weapon against everything I hated about my life, about my parents, about the world with all its rules and strictures and
0: formal grammar. <laughs> huh? Was the antidote? Yeah, it was, was kind the of the therapy. solution. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and it's it's and it is you know I don't know. Maybe she was already doing the primal screen therapy with of Arthur Janov, I don't know. I think she was screaming long before that. Uh, but, did John Lennon do the screen therapy as well? Yeah, yeah, they did it together famously. And the first um, Lennon album is, uh, which is called, I think, John Lennon slash Plastic Ono oh Band, um, the one with Working Class Hero on it and... You know, his first songs after the Beatles uh, is uh, he screams on it. You know, he mm. does these. I know. What is it? Uh, Mama, don't go. Daddy, come home or something like that. He screams over and over again. It's very poignant and tragic.
0: We'll close out today with a rendering of America by Yoko Ono. And David Peel.
1: And John, there's a whole bunch of people. Made in
0: 1971, I think it is. Yeah, I'll give all that in the uh, notes. Maybe Elephant's Memory. Anyway, this is Yoko and David Peel, etc. in America. Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts, a nonprofit organization dedicated to challenging and expanding conceptions of human possibility and the home of Station Hill Press. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network, and our cover art and theme music is by Havana poet Omar Perez author of Cubanology we're live on Pacifica radio network and available on any and all including your favorite podcast venues if you want to be in touch including with any questions insights notices of gaffes or suggestions for future sessions We are very open to those. As we are to donations to our enterprise, please write or call us at Station Hill Press or email bc at stationhill.org. And many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous And please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.